Good morning, church. How you doing? Praise the Lord. Mark, if you're in here, I just want to say your testimony was awesome this morning in the tank. I like the part when you, yeah. My favorite part is when you said, I want people to know that I mean business about my faith. Woo! I just wanted to scream back there. That was good. This morning, church, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians. So if you have a Bible or an app or something you read the Bible off of, won't you get that out? We're going to be in the book, uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Over the last few weeks, Dwayne and I have been the, had the opportunity and the pleasure to be studying this book, to be diving deep, to be sharing with each other the truths that are found in this book. And my prayer over the last week is that as we open the Word of God together, we would not just be informed this morning, but that we would be transformed by the living Word of God. We know in Hebrews it says that the Word is living and it's active. It does something when we hear it and we apply it to our life. So I'm going to pray and we're going to get to work. Why don't you pray with me? Father, the Apostle Paul prayed this prayer for his church. He said, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you have been called, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And it's incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. And he seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. And every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, which is Jesus, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills everything in every way. Father, I pray that same prayer this morning that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which we were called. Please, Father, I pray that I would handle the word correctly this morning with power and strength only from you. God, I pray this in your name. Amen. Before we jump into the book, we can easily just open this letter, jump into the passage, begin to read, but I think we would miss something if we don't slow down and actually get the context of what's going on here in this book. So I'm going to take a few moments and kind of get us up to speed of what's going on. So here's a little bit of information about the church. If we look at this, it's a letter. It was written by Paul. But there's some other things when you open the Bible that, we can, that talks about the book of Ephesians. The first, first thing I want you to know is we know that the author Luke in the book of Acts tells us that Paul spent close to three years in Ephesus. So Paul, if you know the story of Paul, he was a, a Jewish scholar. He was a he was, he was Jewish, and he was actually putting Christians in prison. He was on the road to Damascus with a letter that would give him authority to put Christians in jail. And he meets Jesus, and Jesus says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul gives his life to Christ and starts to serve him. And part of his, his life is a missionary journey that he went on, and he planted churches. And three years he spent with the people there in Ephesus. The letter to the Ephesian church was written by Paul to the saints of Ephesus, so we know that there were Christians there in that place. He says saints is another word for Christians or the body of Christ. There were elders in the church, Acts 27. We know that where Paul went, he, had a, he, had a, he loved elders. He wanted to establish elders and eldership, that, that men of Christ would rise up and lead the church, and he, he would set out a whole declaration of how they should live and how they were chosen. We know that from the word of God. We know that Paul sent young Timothy to the Ephesian church to oversee and pastor. We find that in 1 Timothy 1.3. 
And we also can note in the book of Revelation, Christ chooses Ephesus as the first church to receive a letter. If you go there in Revelation 2, it says how Jesus is commending them for how they would teach the word and about their doctrine and they hold close to it. But he also says that you've forgotten your first love. So these are a few things about the church of Ephesus and what's going on there. A little bit about the city. You have to understand the context of where this letter is going, the church that's in this city. It's a port city. I come from a port city. St. John, New Brunswick um, is a place that's right on the water, and all the boats would come in, all the cruise ships would come in. They would bring in different people, different tourists, and they would really generate a lot of money for the city. Ephesus boasts the temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. We also know that the city had wealth, and we even see from Acts 19.23, they had silversmiths who had made silver shrines. Paul called gods made by hands, not gods. People love their adultery in this community. For, people, for when Paul questions gods made, gods made by hand, a riot breaks out. The Bible is exciting. There's a riot in the Bible. We also see the first organization of unions. These silversmiths get together and they're talking about Paul. We can read this in Acts. They're talking about him. They say, this Paul guy, he's not only doing this here but other places in Asia Minor. He's calling these people and he's saying that these gods are not really gods. And if he continues to do this, we're not going to have a job. So we need to get together, form a union, and we got to go against this guy. This is where the riot breaks out. We see this in the book of Acts. A little bit of information about the spiritual pulse of the culture before we actually jump into the, into the passage of what we're going to read. We actually have to know what's going on in the culture at this time. This church is in this area, and there's some stuff happening. We read that they were practicing magic arts, 19, Acts 19.19. 19. They also had books of spells, the word of God says, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jew and Greek, and fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers, so it's talking about people who were dead coming alive, we're going to talk, that, talk about that in a moment, but these people were coming in, and they're talking to Paul, and they're talking to the elders, talking to the leaders, and saying, hey, we want to live like this, and it says this, they came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. So like, I used to live this way, and I used to follow this book, and, and we got to get rid of these. So he's bringing all the books into the middle of the city, and it says, in the word, it says, as they counted the value of them, they found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. 50,000 pieces of silver. So I thought, what does that mean for us today? Six million dollars. Six million dollars worth of books were burned in the city that had to do with spirits, evil, uh, idolatry and different things like that. And I was thinking about that today, this, or this week. I was thinking if I took, if I was able, I have a key to Pastor Rick's office. So if I was to sneak in there while he's away and take all of his books, and then I have a key to Pastor Steve's office too. <laughs> I'm going to go into Pastor Steve's office, take all his books, take all my books, go to Dwayne's office, going to get all his books, Pastor Kelvin and Ken, put all our books together, bring them in here. They wouldn't even cl be close to $6 million. So think about the amount of evil that was going on in this place at this time. That's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of uh, false teaching, and they were burning them. We also see from uh, there was demonic possession, 1912. There's a really good story right there about, uh, about, about the power of God, and there was also spiritual oppression happening in the city. So now we're coming to our letter. We know that Paul is in jail writing to this, to the church. He's away now. He leaves after the riot breaks out. He goes and continues his journey, and then he's in jail, and he's writing this letter back to the church. And this is where we're going to pick it up today. We're going to be reading at, out of Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, and this is the word of God, so I'm going to ask you to stand. Let's read this together. 
We pick up the word here. It says, therefore, remember at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hand. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of province, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Jesus Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the laws of the commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so make him peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, and he preached peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so, that, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself becomes being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are, all, you are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. May God add a blessing for the reading of his word this morning. Why don't you grab a seat as we begin? So there's this old story, most likely it's more uh, fictitious than factual, according to one Lincoln historian, and it's about Abraham Lincoln, and one day he went down to the slave block, to the slave auction to buy a slave. He says he's down there, and he puts his bid in, and he wins the bid. The illustration goes along as, as Abraham was walking along with his property, it says, he looks down at this young little girl, and he says, young woman, you are free. She looks back up at Mr. Lincoln and says, what does that mean? It means that you are free. She begins to ask a series of questions. Does free mean, she said, that I can say whatever I want to say? He says, yes, you can say whatever you want to say. Well, does free mean that I can be whatever I want to be? He's looking at her and says, yeah, you can be whatever you want to be. You're free. She says, does free mean that I can go wherever I want to go? He looks down once again and says, yes, you can go wherever you want to go. The girl with tears streaming down her face says, then I want to go with you. A powerful illustration, and many pastors use this talking about being connected with Christ. I've read a few articles and blog posts about this illustration, and many of the authors suggest the young girl was so overwhelmed by Lincoln's generosity, with tears running down her face, she says, I want to go with you. But I want to propose another suggestion. Could it be that this little girl has never experienced freedom? She doesn't know what it is. She's asking these questions. She could never understand or has ever understood in her life, I can say whatever I want to say. She's never understood that. She's always had to do whatever she had to do. She could never do her own thing. I can be whatever I want to be was not a part of her life. She lived a certain way as a slave. We see that from history and as it's outlined. I can go wherever I want to go. That was not a reality to her. She didn't understand that. There were places she needed to be and people who were over her telling her certain things. So with tears streaming down her face, she yells out, or she says to him, I'm going with you. Maybe because this is all she's ever known. In the first half of Ephesians, we picked up an 11, but from 2, 1 through 10, Paul points out to the people the lifestyle they always knew. He's talking to them. He's writing to the church. He's saying to them. He says, there was a time in your life, 
He tells the Ephesian church that they, you were once dead. You were once dead. You were once dead in your trespasses and sins. He says, in the way you once walked, the way you always lived, this was the only thing you knew. You didn't even know you were dead. Paul shares that you followed the ways of the world. You followed after evil and demons and false idols, false doctrine. You went to the temple to offer sacrifices to false gods. When you made money, you bought idols and brought them home. You offered to those idols in your homes. He said you did what you thought, did and thought in accordance to your flesh, what was pleasing to your eye. We get that from our, your mother, Eve. What was pleasing to your eye, you took and enjoyed. You would put your hand on anything that you wanted. Paul outlines in this part of the text that you were children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. We hear that in the testimonies of today and, and, and of people we know. There was once a time in our lives where we walked a certain way. We were dead and we didn't even know it. And then he, he comes in with this but in 2.4. He says, but because of God's great love for us, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when, even when we were dead in what? Our transgressions and sins. But it's by grace that you've been saved. So as we get into our passage that we read from 11 to 22, I want to encourage you this morning that the passage that we're going to look at as that the passage that we're going to break down this morning is a, is a reminder passage because we're forgetful. And it's, and it's also an encouraging passage. It's a passage that gives us encouragement for the church. It's, it's a passage for Calvary right now and for people who are not here yet that God will bring. So as we look at the passage that we read, Paul is trying to outline three things, and he, he wants us to look at the past. He wants to start with the past. He's writing to the church. He, wants, he says, I want you to remember. So we see this in, in Ephesians, or, yeah, Ephesians 2.11. Therefore, remember. Well, remember what, Paul? What do we need to remember? As he's outlining this to the church, he says, remember that you were Gentiles by birth, that you were separated from Christ. He says, remember that at one time you were excluded from citizenship, that you were a foreigner. You were a foreigner to the covenant of the promises. Hey, guys, I need you to really remember that there was one time that you were without hope, and there was one time that you were without God. See, the thing that we need to notice here that Paul is trying to outline is, is that salvation is for the Jews. It's not including the Gentiles. John, we see this in John 4.22, 4.22, as Jesus is saying. And for a non-Jew, a Gentile like us here today, or like me, to have any hope at all, I must cease to be alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. I must become a fellow citizen of Israel and a fellow heir of the promises. And there is no salvation of the true, outside of the true Israel. And when redemptive history arrived at the incarnation, it did not split into two halves. Did not, Jesus didn't come in for one the redemption of Israel, and then come again for the redemption of the Gentiles. Instead, it opened up and expanded to embrace all believing Gentiles into the people of God, the true Israel. He's trying to remind them that when Jesus came, guys, you have to remember there was a time that you were not included in this. And that in the incarnation, God is, he, he's revealing his plan to incorporate all the people in. John Piper says it like this, I count it the most precious of all things as a Gentile to be saved and be joined to Christ, the seed of Abraham and becoming an heir of all the glory promised to God's people Israel. 
He said, I'm excited that the true Israel's destiny is now my destiny, and all the promises made to her are now my promises. I feed on my heritage in the Old Testament day by day. I like this part. It says, I stand on tiptoe in expectation, looking for my Messiah and the establishment of the glorious kingdom of the Son of David. But if I am to love him as I ought, if he is to find faith on the earth when he comes, then I must do what this text says. I must remember. I must remember. I must remember what Paul is talking about. I have to remember that there was a one time in my life that I was not joined to Christ but cut off from him in, him in ignorance and unbelief. Once I was not a fellow, fellow citizen in Israel, but alienated from the commonwealth. Once I was not a fellow heir of the promises, but a stranger to God's covenants, and therefore I was entirely without God and without hope. In other words, Paul says we ought to remember from what we've been saved. We ought to be able to call to mind, call to mind our condition before and without Christ. I came, into the, I came into the family of God later on in life. So reading John Piper's statement about we need to remember, that's easy for me. I can really remember the way I lived before Christ. I can look into the Bible and see in the book of Ephesians in the first half where they would follow after the ways of the world, and I can, I can see myself there. I can see the things that I used to do. I remember when, I, when prayer was not a discipline in my life and fasting didn't, was, I didn't even know what that was. And for comfort, for comfort or safety or even escape, I would turn to things of the world. And when I read Ephesians 2, 3, you once lived for the passage of your flesh, carrying, those out in the, carrying the desires out in your body, I can say, amen. I didn't even know that word then. I'd say, yeah, that was me. That's what I used to do. And many who come to the Lord later in life, this is the reality. They can understand and know what they're talking about, what he's talking about when he says you have to remember and also, if you trusted Christ as your Savior when you were very young, you might be tempted here to say, I have nothing to remember but only faith. I have no great conversion story. I had this pastor I used to work with, and he used to come to me and say, Nick, your testimony is far different from mine, but they're both valuable. I said, yes. He says, you've gone through things in this world that I have not gone through. I've never had this or that, or I never went through this. I said, yes. And he says, but I want you to know the best story is, the best conversion story is the ones, is mine, not yours. I said, okay. I'm not competing here. <laughs> and he says, the best story is one of those ones where you, you grow up in a Christian home. Your parents love Jesus. People in your family express the Bible to you and show you the, the disciplines, and you learn them very early in age. You begin to walk in those things. And he says, but there's this temptation inside the church that people don't feel that they're worthy because they, don't, they haven't gone through all this, all this stuff. And they feel worthless or, or sometimes they can feel like they don't have a story. But that's the best story of all. That's the best story of all. I'm raising three children right now and I don't want them to experience anything that I've gone through. I want them to experience Christ and his love I want them to know and understand what he did for them and that he, they would early put their trust in him and grow up in his likeness. I don't want them to see the world the way I've seen it. But the reality is they will see some of it. And as parents, we know a lot of heads nodding in this room, is we do the best that we can for our kids. We'll put the best things there so they can, they can see Jesus. 
and that they can have that conversion story. And in some, but the reality is, in some kids, they, they, they always have to make their own decisions. And as parents, we love by. We stand by and we love by. We do whatever we can for our kids so that they can grow in the likeness of Christ. And that's a beautiful story. So you parents who are in this room, good job. Keep it up. Keep pouring into your children. Keep showing them Jesus. Keep showing them grace. Keep showing them discipline in the Lord. We're with you on this. I don't think, I don't believe Paul wrote this text just for people with dramatic conversion stories. He was writing for all the people, all the Gentiles to urge us to reflect on what our plight would be apart from the mystery of Christ, which makes us fellow heirs of grace. And this plight would, is simply and awfully being without God and therefore without hope. He wants, the, he wants the congregation to think about that. I want you to think about that. It doesn't matter if you came into the church later on in life or you just came, uh, you, you were born into the church. I want you to stop for a moment and think what your life would be without Christ. John Calvin says there's no worse screen to block out the spirit than confidence in our own intelligence. If we were just to take a tangent right now, just come over here for a moment and just think about it, we were to gather together and put our minds together and just ponder what it would be without God. What would life be, mean without God? Well, it would mean we would be without Jesus, which would also mean that we would be uh, without justification. We would be enemies of God, which means that we would forfeit the promise and protection that he provides for us, his grace and his love. We wouldn't have the blood that would cover us. We wouldn't have regeneration in our life. That's no new life for you. You still have the old life. We would be without the Holy Spirit, our counselor and guide. We would be without the disciplines of prayer, community, solitude. We would be, with all those, be without all those things, which would lead us to living a life without hope, meaningless, a chasing after the wind. A, major, a majority of our society, our community, live without hope and live without God. And if you think about the church and where it was at and the stuff that was going on in the community, the people outside the church body of believers, we can actually think about that as our church, as Calvary right now. So we come in here each week and we come in and we know Jesus and we know, know what's going on. We know his hope and his love and, and we know the future in him. We win. We win. I read the end of the book. We win. We win through Jesus. So every time I'm going through this rough stuff, every time I'm going through this, this thing I don't understand, and it's patience, it's patience. God's going to see me through. We win. We win. That's my hope. We win. People outside the church, they don't know the end of the book. They don't even know there is a book. They don't know the hope in Christ. And they, they run after the things that leave us hopeless. I'm going to pursue money. I'm going to pursue fame and fortune. I'm going to I need to get into this school because this will lead me to this place. And then I get into this school and I'm not at the place I needed to be. I still feel hopeless. Man, I got the best job in the world. Look how much money I make. But still I feel broken and empty inside. It's a chasing after the wind. And Paul is writing and leading his church through this process of understanding their purpose. First, the first step, he says, remember the past. He directs them to remember. The second thing he wants his church and the church in this, this community to look at is the presence, the present time right now. Look what God has done. Look what God has done. We see this in verse 13, but now, 
In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off were brought near by the blood of Christ. That right there, that's a gospel-centered passage. That is preaching and teaching the truth. That's why I love Paul. He gives a great message for the church, Jesus. It's got to be about Jesus. Paul is stating the gospel of Jesus Christ and his mission right here in this statement. Paul's saying that there was an old division of people in two classifications. There were Jews and Gentiles, and they have, that has been transcended by a new entity in Christ, which is the church. Which is the church. He's trying to get the people to remember, look what Christ has done. To be brought near is to have access to God. To have access to God only comes through Jesus and his substitutionary death. And to have access to God is to have access to new life. If you're in Christ here today, you have access to God. You're you're available to talk to God. You're you're able to, to go to him in prayer. You're able to come here and worship him. You're able to give tithes and offerings to his kingdom. But so many choose not to. They forget that they have access to God and they let the worries of this world overcome them. And Paul is trying to say, hey, you've been brought near and you now have access to God. New life is following. As we jump back into the scripture in verse 14, it says, for he himself, who is this? Jesus is our peace, who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in the flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in him one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both to them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. As we break this passage down and as Paul is writing to his church, we can glean from that. We need to know that, we need to know and understand the peace which, ref, which he's talking about is referring to the harmonious state of friendship with God and with each other. See, we're not an enemy of God anymore. Not at all. We're not an enemy of each other. Because of Christ, God has brought so many people together funny when I was doing mission work in Guatemala I would go over there and I would meet these brothers and they're amazing and they would say well I love Jesus and I would say well I love Jesus brothers unity there's no hostility because of what God has done this week I uh, pastor Calvin is on sabbatical and I got to see him just the other night we were at a refuge fundraising dinner and he was on one at one table I was at the other uh, other table and it was a great night we were we were laughing and joking at what was going on in a good way and just encouraging. And then after I ran over and I said, Kelvin, how you doing? And before he asked, how was your work? How's your family? He, he, he declares, the body of Christ is beautiful. I said, yes, it is. He's like, I've been down in New York City. I've been talking to these people. And outside of Calvary, I already knew Calvary was beautiful. He says, but the body of Christ everywhere is beautiful. I said, it's funny that you're talking about that because that's what I'm talking about this weekend is how the body of Christ comes together. It's beautiful because of what Christ has done. But we need to know that there's something going on inside this church that Paul's writing to. There's something going on inside the walls. There's these two groups, and they're coming together, and they're not getting along. There's some hostility there. You ever been inside a family where there's hostility? People slamming doors, people yelling at each other? Maybe that was your house this morning. Sometimes I remember getting ready for church, trying to get my kids ready when they were early, and we were like, I got to be there like an hour ago. 
and we're so late. Put pants on. Let's go. There's hostility. Come on. There's frustration going on. So there's something going on in this church, and we have this side note that we need to, we need to, to share. We see in the next chapter, God reveals the mystery of Christ where God is bringing in the fold the Gentile nation, but there's still some anger and some hostility going on in between these two groups inside the building, inside the, the body. The Jews and the Gentiles are becoming one body, the church. And a large part of this refers to the temple. If you think about the temple in Jerusalem, that's where the Holy of Holies was, and that's where the presence of God was. And if we were to break this down in the Jewish culture, there would be this one area, I know you know this, but the Holy of Holies was where God's presence was, and then there was the big veil, and then outside of that were the priests. And these priests would, would serve the Lord, do the sacrifices once a year. They would come in, they'd tie a little rope around the priest, he'd go in, in case he'd seen the presence of God, he'd fall dead, they'd pull his body out, send another one in. I didn't want that job. I'm glad that wasn't in the uh, job description. Um, but they'd have the Holy of Holies and the veil, and then they'd have uh, the priests, and then they'd have religious leaders helping the priests, and then there'd be a wall blocking off access to God. And there'd be another wall, another wall, another wall. There'd be Jewish women and people in the courtyard, and there'd be a couple more walls, and then there'd be the Gentile court. So these is where the Gentiles were. These were the people that are not the chosen ones of God. And the presence of God was way over here. And then there was all these things and all these walls. And then they were there. And there was this sign that says, if you trespass here, you will die. Basically, they're saying, if you come in here, you're not worthy to come in here. And if you do, I got a great big rock that I'm going to drag your body outside the city walls. And it's going off your head. This actually existed. So when we're talking about the hostility that's going on in this place, it's very real. And they really understand this. If you pass through the wall and try to get any closer to the access or the presence of God, then we're going to kill you. It's a death sentence. So there was this literal and spiritual dividing wall of hostility between the Jews and Gentiles that was going on in the church. There was a clear distinction between Jews and Gentiles. If a Gentile crossed that threshold, it was death. And here we have Paul saying Christ, through his death, through the cross, has tore down the wall of hostility and made a way for both groups to become one in Christ. Think about like this. We know there's some young adults and some younger ones in our, our congregation getting married. I know some of the people in here have had a few weddings in their family. This morning, I know the kings did. They were waving at me. They had a, they've, a lot of their kids have got, well, all of their kids have got married in the last little bit. We have some other people. These families, uh, a wedding will be happening. Kind of look at it like this. We've got two different families, two different sets of practices, traditions, upbringings. One family might bring up one side of the family a little different versus the other. And sometimes we don't have families that get along. Sometimes this engagement and wedding planning is a major process. I don't like the colors you've picked. I don't like your hair. And this, there's, there's this tension. I remember there was this one time when I was learning how to do weddings. I was never able to officiate the weddings because I, I wasn't licensed or I'm not licensed. But I, there was this one time where my pastor came in and he said, I need your help. I said, oh, Okay. And I'm thinking, whoo, free training. He's like, your job is the mediator between the family. I'm like, what? He's like, that's your job. They hate each other. They are fighting. They are just going crazy here. And I walk in, and I'm like, hi, I'm Pastor Nick. We don't care who you are. We're doing it my way. We've got someone on the other side. We're doing it this way. And I'm like running back and forth, grabbing water. I'm like, oh, this is, this is, this is not good. Then the day comes, the day finally comes, and the bride is outside the doors, and the groomman, he's up here, doors open. Any real man worth his salt would be crying at this point, seeing their bride. 
I'm throwing that out. Jordan. Jordan's getting married too. Bride comes down. Two bloodlines becoming one. And through the process of marriage, the two become one in Christ. And this same process is what Paul is trying to illustrate here. God, through Jesus, is bringing two hostile groups together as one new family under Christ. The two who are separate are becoming one. We can take this a step further and look at the church of today. There are people who are saved later on in life without any background, tradition, structure, or Bible knowledge. There's a community just outside our door. Many of them don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, don't know his ways, don't know what he's asking for. And then there are those who are here inside the church. Sometimes later on in life, we get this thing called barbaric Christianity. There's a pastor in the States, Erwin McManus from Mosaic Church. He talks about this one point in his life where he came to know the Lord. He came to a, a nice church, and they had a young adult campus college ministry, and he came in, and he knew he needed his life to change. So he comes to the group, and he meets this young woman. She says, welcome. Come on in. He says, well, I'm here for Jesus. I need to give my life to the Lord. He gives his life to the Lord. She calls him and says, hey, why don't you come to church tonight? We're doing a Bible study. You need to learn the Bible. You're coming in, got your life, getting your life right, need to learn the Bible. Everyone's like, okay, I'm coming. He's like, just meet at the church. He comes into the church. Uh, I don't have a Bible. That's okay. We're going to give you a Bible. He comes in, and there's a bus there, and she says, get on the bus. He's like, where are we going? Bible study. Where's the Bible study? Prison. Going to prison. So he gets on the bus. He's freaking out. I would be too, thinking, what's going to happen? Why am I going to prison? I tried to give my life to Jesus so I could stay out of prison, get my life right. Now I'm going to prison with Jesus all confused. He gets off the bus. He's leading. Pastor stops him. Hey, here you go. We got you a, gave your life to the Lord. We got you a nice Bible. It's King James Bible. It's gold lettering. Has your name on the front. He gets his Bible. He's gripping it. He's walking into the prison. He's new to the Lord. He doesn't know anything. He doesn't understand. The girl's like, it's going to be okay. It's a Bible study. You'll be all right. It's just a Bible study. He's gripping his Bible. The pastor says, okay, we're going to break up into small groups, meet with somebody. Share the, we've been sharing the, the powerful work of God over the last few weeks. And if they have any questions, any sins, or anything in their life, you answer them. Erwin's standing there, and he gets in this small group, and the guy comes right after him. I've been here for three weeks listening to the pastor. I need to give my life to the Lord. He has no clue. He goes on and says he, he begins to randomly open the Bible. Uh, how long will you torment me and break me into pieces with words? Uh, that's not going to work. Okay. Well, uh, judgment is going to come all the... F I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm a new Christian. I don't know anything. But a couple weeks ago, I gave my life to, life to Jesus, and this is what they said. Pray this prayer, and if you mean it, you'll be saved. Do you want to pray that prayer with me? Yes. He's a pastor today. He came in early in the church, and he didn't know what he was doing. So we have people that will come into the church. There could be people even right now who don't understand or know the ways of the Lord. They're still understanding. Maybe it's your first day here, and you're like, oh, I'm nervous. I'm awkward. I, I don't know how this goes. And then on the other side of this is, is the church, the brothers in Christ, the people who have grown up in the church family. They know the Bible. They understand structure. They understand the rules and how church works. And sometimes we put both these groups in the same room for worship, discipleship, small groups. And sometimes there's a breakdown and miscommunication and understanding. Sometimes hostility can come from based on the upbringings or past lives. That can happen. If you're in a small group and you have two different worlds colliding over the scripture. And I believe this and I believe that. And there's this breakdown of miscommunication. 
Mark Driscoll in his book, Who, Who Do You Think You Are, describes it like this. And for the Jewish people, you're trying to figure out, okay, our primary identity is in Christ. And for the Gentiles on the other side, our primary identity is in Christ. And we shouldn't be fighting with one another. We should be loving one another and figuring this out and figuring out what it means to be this new family in God. In fact, our Father and Jesus, our, as our Father and Jesus, our saving big brother, we got to figure this out as people are coming in. I had one lady come up to me after, and she said, that part where you were talking about people growing up in the church versus people coming into the church, not knowing and growing up, she's like, uh, uh, that really hit me. And I said, why did that hit you? She's like, because I grew up in the church. I said, okay. She's like, and I, I know how to read the Bible. I, I know what to do. And, and there was a time in my life where God highlighted that, me, highlighted that in my life and saying, I'm very prideful. I just overpassed the, or I, over, I just would pass by like the things that were going on and, and I would use the excuse, well, I know that. I've been taught that. And, and the truth was I, I didn't really, I knew of it, but I wasn't practicing any of it. Versus the other way coming in of, we see this more often of people coming into the church feeling unworthy. I don't belong there. You guys are different. God wouldn't love me. These are the things that we hear on a regular basis. And Paul's trying to say through Christ, he's bringing two together as one for a reason. There's a purpose. God says, or Paul is, Paul is using the analogy and, and saying, guys, you have to remember who you were in the past. You have to preach it daily to yourself in the present of what Christ has done because there is a purpose so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and the saints and members of the household of God. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together in the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. By the Spirit. See, when you come in and you come through Christ, and when Pastor Ken prayed this morning, if you were outside the blood of Christ, you are outside the cross. All you need to do is believe and say it with your mouth. And through Jesus, you are a part of the family. You're counted in and you matter. You're a part of the body. And because Jesus beat death, he was risen from the grave. Every shackle has come undone and he has opened the door to God the Father. And in Christ, you are part of the family of God and part of the body of Christ, the church. And there is a purpose for this. See, God once dwelled in a temple in a faraway land, in the Holy Land, but now if you think about it, that's just land. That's just land over there. Because based on this passage, the dwelling place, the new dwelling place of God is now in the people here right now. As we come together, we sing praises, the dwelling of God is here. It's not in a building, it's in the people, it's in the center of the building. It's in the center of the people. So there's a purpose for this. For God once made his dwelling in the temple, but now he makes his dwelling in Christians, and Christians are the temple of God corporately. And we would gather in unity, praying for the Father's will to be done, outdoing one another in love and sharing the gospel. We grow in Christ, and Christ grows his church. We grow in Christ, and Christ grows his church. So when we come in, we need to be remembering who we were and what Christ has done because it's for a purpose. When you walk in here into the, the worship gathering, you are part of the body. When you leave, you're still part of the body. And we as the church, we need to outdo each other in love, the word of God says. Outdo each other. 
in sharing the gospel, not, a, not as a big competition, look what I have done, but let's do this together. If we know there's someone in our church hurting, we go to them. We know that someone in our family needs Jesus, and, and you've been trying your whole time, all this time trying to pour into them, pouring into your kids. You can't do it by yourself. They're not listening to you. You call another family in. We do this together, locking arms. Because the, the dwelling place of God is in is corporally when we gather in unity. We see this in Acts 2.42. There's this little picture. I love this little picture of, a, of the church. It says that the, the church came together and they were under the teachings of the apostles. And they were given to one another, selling property. And nobody in, them, in their midst was, was doing without. And they were breaking bread in each other's houses and meeting in the temple. And they were doing these things together corporately as a church. And the community was looking at that and saying, what's going on there? There's a tagline on the bottom of Acts 2.42, and it shows, it says, and God added to their numbers daily. The church came together in unity under Christ because of what he has done for them. They're trusting in him. They're blessing each other. God's dwelling in the midst. People are watching, and God's adding numbers daily of those who are being saved. You think about this passage. You think about how Paul is writing to this church inside a community where they can burn $6 million worth of books on spells, and the people on the outside of the church are living in a certain way. He's writing to this small church and saying, God is going to dwell in the middle of you guys, and you guys are going to make a big difference. I believe that wasn't not just for the Ephesian church, but for us here at Calvary today. Because outside of our body is a broken world. Outside of our body is a world that is living without hope and without God. They're fighting for different things that don't glorify Jesus. We see it in our workplaces. We see it in our schools. God says there's a purpose for the church. He is the head and we are the body and the hands and feet of him. We're to go and share the truth, live the truth and be the truth. And I think that is an encouraging message for us. Because so I once, at the beginning of this, I said this is an encouraging passage. It's a remembering passage. It's a passage for us here at Calvary Baptist Church. And it's a message for the people that are not here yet. As people come and as we open the doors, they're going to see love. They're going to see the unity. They're going to see Christ being preached and taught. Not just from the pulpit, but in our lives. As we open our arms and allow people to come in and share we teach our young adults that you can come to know the Lord any way. The foot of the cross is, is, is flat ground, but don't expect to stay there. Don't expect to stay that way because when you get your life right with Christ, he changes us, and you're part of the body. So in closing this morning, I'm not going to try and say something clever to you, but I'm going to just share this passage from Ephesians 4 where Paul continues to share with the church. Ephesians 4, 1 through 7. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, think about where their pastor is. He's in, he's in prison. He's writing this letter, thinking about the letter that comes into the church. The letter is read out loud to all the people, and they're hearing these words. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I'm urging you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you've been called. He's writing this. He says, guys, I wanted you to remember your life without Christ. Remember what Christ has done through the cross. It's for a purpose. 
It's for a purpose. He says, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you were called. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I love that part, that verse 3. Eager. We're putting it as a focus to maintain the unity of the Spirit. He goes on to say, there is one body. There's one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Even as we've seen today, there's one baptism into the, into the family. One God and Father of all who is who's over all and through all and in all. Paul is writing to these, this church and says, guys, there's darkness all around. And you have the light of Christ. And you've been called into this body for a purpose. And you're to share that light. And God will build his church, and he will grow you, and we will sharpen each other. And as we do that, we'll see God dwelling within us and through us. And it will impact not just only our church, our families, our children, but it will go out into the community. I believe Jesus has set up, I believe God has set up through Jesus, Calvary Baptist, as a lighthouse in this community. I believe that... I'm the newest pastor on staff. And I come in here, I've been here almost two years, and I've seen dead people come to life. I've seen it by the work of the church, by what God is doing through the people. And I believe he's not done. I, wanted to, I want to I see Acts 2.42 lived out in my lifetime. God added to the the numbers daily those who were being saved because the church had one focus, and that was Jesus. And we're seeing that here. And I believe that God is going to encourage us. He's going to continue to challenge us. He's going to continue to teach us. And we're going to see many people come to know the Lord. Maybe you're here this morning, and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. As Pastor Ken said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, then you will be saved. Maybe you're new to the church, maybe you're a visitor today and you've walked in and, and you really, it's foreign to you. We had two people this morning come in and say, this is my first time here. Maybe that's you this morning. I want you to tell you that the body of, of Christ is beautiful and there's a place for you here. You come talk to one of the pastors after, we'll pray with you. In closing, I just want to share this. I'm so excited to see what God is doing in the body of believers. I'm so excited to see what God is doing when he's raising up our kids. A couple weeks ago, on long week, a long, uh, the long weekend, we took a group of young students, of college students, down, down, downtown Oshawa. And when we got in the room, last year we were up in Nonquan, we have a prayer station, we put the prayer station up there. So I think they thought that we were going to Nonquan. We got into the little room. They were all gathering, all smiles on their face, like they're all excited. And I say, okay, guys, we're going to go downtown Oshawa. And all their faces changed. Like, what? Why? Why are we going there? Why are we going to do that? Well, we have to because there are people down there that, that need Jesus. Well, why aren't we going to Nonquan? Had one of another guy. Why don't we go to the beach? No, we're not going to the beach. We're going downtown. And I could see the worry on their face. I had a few young adults saying, I don't think we should go down there. I don't know if I signed up for this. 
So we pack up the cars, we get water, we get freezies, we get the prayer station, we go down. And we set this up on the side of the road. And at first, I could see the, the nervousness on their face. And, and we prayed and we said, God's going to do something today. Let's just share the, let's, let's just be honest and share the truth of why we're here. And point them back to Jesus. We were there for two hours and prayed with over 20 different people. We had a bus driver stop. He was prayed for. We had a young man, Phil, he's here today. This young man comes up, or middle-aged man comes up, and he says, I'm a new father. Phil's like, congratulations. And what are you doing here? Well, we're praying for people. And he, he starts to walk away, and Phil grabs him, and he says, hey, can I pray for you? Phil's on the side of the road praying for this young father, well, this father who has a new baby. We had a couple girls across the street praying over a man. I had one guy on a skateboard come over, and he didn't want anything to do with us. And then at the end of it, he gave me his name, his phone number, and his email address. And he said, next time that you're out here, I want to come. And I said, well, we're not here just to hand out water. We're here because of Jesus. He says, well, I want to know about that too. See, the church is wonderful. And the church is because of Jesus Christ. And it will, and it is making a difference. And we're the church. And I pray that God would use us to reach our families and our neighbors and that God would add people to this church daily, those who are being saved. Let's pray together. Father, I just thank you for this day, and I thank you that uh, the message that we've heard today through Paul to the Ephesian church, this one of remembering, this one of hope, is something that we, as the body at Calvary, can take, take notice of. We can put into our lives. We can think about how that small church became a big church and a big impact in the place where they were at. Where so much evil and so much dominion was over the city, there was light through the body of believers because of what Christ did. I think about that today as we are going out into the community. We're walking light because of Jesus. And there are dark places. There's dark places in our families and in our neighborhoods and in our communities. But Christ is light in us. So God, we thank you for that. I thank you for the unity of the church about encouraging each other, coming in and finding our place in the body. We know that you dwell within the, the body corporately and your spirit dwells within us. We know in your word there were two or more gathered, you were there in the midst. And God, as we go today, I pray that you would challenge us, that we would walk in a, in a, in a, a manner worthy of our calling so that people will see Jesus in our lives, in our speech in our families. God, we thank you for your powerful word. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, outside these doors lies a coulter, just like the one Paul spoke to. There are many who live without hope and without God, and they see no need for him. They do not know or even understand the promises of Christ, the power of the cross, or the implication of the church. But here's the thing, we do. God has brought us in through the shed blood of his son so that we, will be the, we are and we can or we, we are the dwelling place of God. And as we continue to remember what God has done, pursue after holiness in Christ and build each other up, people will see the living God in our lives and in our church. And I pray as we go today that we would think about the calling that we've been called to and the unity of the body of Christ. May God bless you today as you serve him. Have a great day.